0: Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Our guest today on The Resilient Surgeon is Marcus Buckingham, and the topic is how we are all so weird. By weird, Marcus does not mean weird in the somewhat pejorative sense of the word. He means weird, spelling W-Y-R-D, in that we are all weirdly unique human beings. Marcus points out that our human brains are made up of 100 billion neurons, And all of those 100 billion neurons are wired together by 100 trillion connections, which creates a staggeringly infinite number of unique wiring combinations, which is what makes each and every one of us utterly unique and, well, weird. Weird is an old Norwegian term that refers to one's personal fate or soul. And Marcus uses the term to refer to the unique neurologic wiring arrangement that each of us has, sitting in the dark, silent vault of our skulls. Regardless of whether you call it your soul, your fate, your personal operating system, or just your unique wiring, it is unique and it is your weird. Your weird is responsible for all of the idiosyncratic ways in how you see and interact in the world. To quote from Marcus's book, Love Plus Work, there is no one else in the world, nor has there ever been, nor will there ever be again, who has the same pattern of 100 trillion connections as you. What you remember, what you forget, what makes you laugh, what makes you impatient, what makes you angry, what delights you, what scares you, what calms you, what enervates you, it's all part of a pattern you share precisely with no one. As you walk through life, the world you see is seen by you alone. Your reaction to this world are yours alone. Your loves, that action, that interaction, that person's laugh, that confrontation, that walk, that blank canvas, that line of computer code, that perfect color match between two pieces of kitchen tiles are yours and only yours. However, there is a big problem. As we go through the long journey of becoming a surgeon, we hit the ground running in college, then into medical school, then into surgery and cardiothoracic surgery, running on a treadmill at high speed, and in the process of creating a uniform group of uniformly competent surgeons, each of us may lose ourselves, assuming we ever really knew ourselves, and lose our weird as the treadmill continues on into our career. And losing ourselves and what we really love to do in the process of saying yes to so many things that do not tap into our unique weird, and what we naturally love to do is a recipe for misery existential angst and burnout. Marcus Buckingham is a global researcher and New York Times bestselling author focused on unlocking people's strengths, increasing their performance and defining a better future for how people work. Marcus is the author of two of the best-selling business books of all time. First, Break All the Rules and now Discover Your Strengths. He wrote two of Harvard Business Review's most circulated industry-changing cover articles and he co-created the Strengths Finder and Standout Strengths Assessments, which have been taken by over 10 million people worldwide. Today, he's the co-head of the ADP Research Institute, where he leads studies into people and performance around the world. His new book, Love Plus Work, is the book where he details all of the inner workings of our weird. I honestly believe Marcus's message in this podcast and book may be the most important and life-changing perspective you will ever have. It has changed the way I see myself, the way I see the members of my family, and it has changed how I see all human beings in a very positive way. So sit back, listen up, and find out just what it is that makes you so weird. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Viporshan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS Cardiothoracic Surgery eBook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world, and it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This eBook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program and the residents love the high-quality illustrations, photos, and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app, so it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24/7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org/ebook here today with Marcus Buckingham, the author of the recent book, Love Plus Work. And in terms of framing up the conversation, I thought it would be useful to tell you about uh, my fortuitous concatenations that led me to the whole process of understanding how love at work is so important and from a couple of personal experiences. And I thought this might be a good framework for setting up the conversation. On a personal note, my son, Sam, uh, went into the Naval Academy. And I remember the day that he walked in through the doors of the Bancroft Hall, the dorm, and our son, who was 17 at the time, who barely knew anything about himself, if anything at all, really, uh, went into the uniform, the process of becoming a uniform uniform military officer. As it turns out, it wasn't the right fit for him, and he suffered a great deal during that time. Uh, and this, I realize that there's a similar parallel for us in medicine and as we go into residency. Uh, m- so many of us, we go to college, then we go to medical school, and then we decide to enter a residency program, which is very intense in a way like the Naval Academy. And so if, if, if we ever knew ourselves at all, and this is a core thesis of your entire work, uh, we go into these things and we are then inculcated or trained to become the uniform products that is necessary to provide services to our patients. And in the case of cardiothoracic surgery, that's a high bar. We have to do our work and and perform it extremely well. But my thesis is that just like my son, Sam, and so many of us in medicine, we go into residency and we become a doctor, but we lose ourselves along the way if we ever really knew ourselves. And I, you know, people talk about the EMR and all these other aspects that undoubtedly contribute to the incredible burnout rates in medicine, which are similar for uh, cardiothoracic surgery. But I realized that it was much more than that. And that's born of my own personal experience as a cardiothoracic surgeon. Uh, that it was much deeper than just simply the other overwhelm aspects that are coming at us from the modern world and, and data and all that. And then when I read your book, Love Plus Work, that really put it together for me. So that's the contextual nature I, I thought might be useful for you. And really, you know, what I want you to do, if you can, and I know you can, is to really educate us about the process of love plus work and how in this really whitewater environment of medicine, we can return to ourselves to whatever way possible and find fulfillment despite the challenges that we all significantly face in medicine. And, and Marcus, really maybe the, the best starting place is because a lot of our listeners may not know you and know of your work. If you could try to just give us a brief overview of your, of your path from England, from a young man that had a severe stuttering problem all the way up to becoming, you know, one of the world's experts on workplace engagement and resilience and, you know, having a whole Oprah Winfrey show dedicated, uh, you know, to your work.
1: Yeah, so I, um, I came over from uh, uh, university in 1987 and joined a company that most people know called the Gallup Organization, but most people know Gallup for polling. But a lot of what Gallup was doing at the time still does, in many cases, is is called psychometrics. It's, it's trying to measure aspects of the human condition and the human experience that are very important, but that you can't count. So things like, what are your strengths? What are your natural talents? How do we measure your empathy? How do we measure your competitiveness? How do we measure your growth orientation or strategic thinking? Um, how do we measure how engaged you are? How do we measure how resilient you are? Or when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, we can count the diversity, we can count the equity, but what but what about your feelings of inclusion? and can mm-hmm. we reliably me- me- uh, me- can we reliably measure those and are those more important than the D and the E? So I spent a lot of my time, first seventeen years of my career at Gallup, just trying to put some reliable measurement to those those things strengths, engagement, resilience, and so forth. I then left and Um, formed my own software company and so spent sort of 12 entrepreneurial years building a building a company designed to help managers and team members uh, build more powerful teams and then um, ADP bought that company ADP the payroll company bought that company and asked to see whether or not I would want to co-head the institute that they fund they fund a a workplace institute which produces the national employment report every month which many people know because it mm-hmm. basically says what the unemployment level is uh adp pays you know a third of all people so it can actually see it's not a survey it's actually seeing how many people are mm-hmm. employed mm-hmm. but but they didn't really have through the institute anything related to sentiment anything related to people's strengths um what are people feeling about work so uh this was about four or five years ago and i was like you know what i'm a researcher by predisposition and to have a, a global institute like this that I could uh, that I could continue to explore with my team, what's really going on in the hearts and the minds of people who work um, was really exciting. So that's what I run now. And we do these global studies on all issues relating to uh, workplace sentiment, workplace experience, which given the COVID-ness of the last two years has been very dynamic and very interesting. Um, in terms of Strengths. I, I built something called Strength Finder when I was at Gallup with my mentor Don Clifton, and uh, we've been investigating strengths through another assessment that I've built ten years ago called Standout, which is really more for right. the—it's more for the team leader than it is for the individual. Strength Finder is really more for the individual, and then now, obviously, with with the book Love and Work, um, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of stuff around the fact that we shouldn't expect work to love us back. That work is just transactional. That that you go to work you get your money and you go home to buy things for people that you love but actually having spent 25 years interviewing people that are really really good at what they do everybody from surgeons to to leaders to housekeepers to miners to teachers you interview anyone who is really good at what they do and there's love in it there's love in what they do not all that they do it's not like they do what they love we actually have no data that says that the most effective people do all that they love or love all that they do, mm-hmm. that's, that's idealism. But you study really, really successful people and you ask them to talk about what it is that they do, the activities that they do. And it's not that they love all they do, but they do find the love in what they do. They find specific activities in their day, every day, that they love, that they lean into, that nourish them. And so the impetus for this book, I suppose, was To some extent 25 years of that kind of research and trying to put it in a frame that people could really get and then to some extent it was a child of the pandemic because my daughter came to me like 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 many parents i was a i was a parent come teacher during the during the pandemic Uh so my 16 year old daughter comes to me kind of early in the pandemic and goes what's the difference between a rhombus and a parallelogram Uh and i realized two things immediately one I didn't know the difference between <laughs> rhombus <laughs> and a parallelogram, And second, that some group of people many years ago had decided that geometry was so important, so critical, that, that my daughter would be subjected just like most kids to 10 years of geometry, um, so that she would learn the language and learn the formulae and learn the, the frameworks for her understanding of geometry, which is, by the way, jolly good. That's you know great, big right, fan of right. geometry, right? But at the same time, you realize that all the really important things that your son wanted to know at 17, and that we all want to know, you know, at 30, when you wake up on one morning and you go, who am I? And what are the unique strengths that I bring? And how can I use my own life to figure out what I love to do? And how do I explain that to people on a new team, perhaps, that I'm joining? Or, or how do I ask and be curious about somebody else's loves and abilities and talents without being um, intrusive. And, and by the way, which parts of me are just me versus my race or my gender or my age or my particular functional discipline, mm-hmm. which are all quite important and a big part of my identity, but I share them with millions of other people. So the thing that will wake her up at 30, my daughter, just like your son, is, is, is which parts of me are just me. And how can I contribute them? Mm-hmm. And you realize that, sorry for the long answer to the short no, question. No, no, this but, is
0: beautiful. Just keep going. Keep going. Um, the,
1: <laughs> what you realize is she will get no years on that. All those questions, which are really quite meaty questions. In psychology, we call that individual difference psychology. By the way, if you study psychology, you actually get very little time at all on individual different psychology. Right. But it's really, it's the, it's the questions that we are all plagued by during the course of our life. Who am I? What can I contribute? How much of me can I change if I really work at it? And how much of me is just me? Where will I learn and grow the most? All those sorts of things. She gets nothing on it at all. Nothing. Zero. I mean, you might take Strength Finder, or you might take Myers-Briggs, or you might take Enneagram. But even if you take those things, you sort of shove them in the drawer when you've taken them. They're not they're not part of a decade-long discipline about self-mastery.
0: Right. So
1: that, in the end, is why I wanted to write the book, is to, in a sense, try to help every 25-year-old or every 17-year-old, or I guess every 45-year-old.
0: I'd even put myself, 67-year-old, in every the Every
1: 67-year-old, go, yeah. hey, yeah. You know, no matter how comfortable your bed is, sooner or later, you have to get up and get out of it. And when you do, how do you move through life All the domains of your life whether it's work or home or community or faith or activism whatever how do you move through all the domains in your life and be nourished through the movement we talk about work-life balance a lot but actually nothing as you know nothing healthy in nature is balanced really everything's moving everything's in in motion and and whether it's physics or biology or psychology if you move through your life and figure out your unique way of being nourished by that movement well then that's growth that's flourishing if you move through domains of your life and are drained and depleted by one of those domains like say work maybe your work is 60 hours of lovelessness then you can't really make it up from getting massive love from another domain like family or hobbies the the, The healthiest way for all of us to move through life is to know how to be nourished by each of the domains that we choose to include in our lives. And there's just very, very little substantive work done on that to help my daughter or your son or you or me know how to do that intelligently. So that was the focus, that's how I got here. And that's why today I'm like, if I get hit by a truck tomorrow, I want somewhere where people could go to to learn. How do you move through life and get nourished through the movement?
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. And the the thing is, of all your work, I feel like love plus work is the culmination of, as you said, that twenty five years of tremendous work and experience. And it, you got hit, if you got hit by a truck, I agree. This book really is is like the the masterpiece of the entire thing. And it, you know, it was for me, it was a missing link. I mean, Sir Ken Robinson's powerful TED talk was really sort of the first thing inkling I got of that when he talked about this young girl that was thought to have ADHD and turns out she ended up being this incredibly famous dancer, you know, and how our educational system is broken by not allowing people's individuality to to flourish in the process. And then, you know, you read Cal Newport's So Good They Can't Ignore You and he's really getting at the same sort of thing but with a much more of a sort of a computer scientist, you know, technical analysis uh, way of it but yours brings in the book, Love Plus Work, brings in the emotions and the threads of who we are as individuals. Mm. And I have told this framework to my children and many other people, and they're so delighted to have a framework, Marcus. I mean, to have finally a framework that makes sense for them as an individual. And I think if you could now talk about the, the red threads and how these manifest over time and and the concept of a, a quilt, if you will, in our lives, and, and how how we can see this as a great framework for moving forward.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, and I love both those books, and obviously Ken was a is, was a genius. Yeah. Um, although, yes, this is an extension of you know, as, as he said in his TED talk, <laughs> "She's not sick; she's a dancer."
0: Yeah. Which yeah.
1: is is funny and lovely only because you realize that we've pathologized. That child, we pathologize right. many of our kids, um, but it's really just the beginning. Because my my sister was a professional ballet dancer for right. twenty five years, right. went all the way through the Royal Ballet Company, and really the push isn't that she's not a dancer. There's a t- ten thousand kinds of ballet dancers, and and love is in the details. The and details. It's in the detail. Yes. Like you wouldn't go. She's a dancer because, by the way. My sister was a dancer, but was a very specific lyrical kind of dancer that could only flourish in a certain kind of company that she had to be wise and self mastery enough to figure out which particular kind of dancer that she was right. in the same way you say to somebody well, he's not sick, he's just gregarious. <laughs> well, he's not gregarious. Mm-hmm. He's a certain kind of person who's able to win over certain kind of people and loves winning their approval and the detail of who and when and why is part of his genius. So it's almost like Ken opened a small door and we all have to kind of walk through and go, we've missed all the detail. So anyway, the, the, the whole framework of
0: this begins. And and I hate to interrupt you, but even the, the neurologic uh, world that you talk about in the book, you know, the hundred billion connections and all that, I, that was just masterful, masterful. Well, that's where, that's where it starts because the, um,
1: you know, the, the reality is, as, as you know, the, the the uniqueness of a human is a function of the fact that biology loves variety. We, we're constantly creating all sorts of variations of the same thing within us. And out of that comes uh, fitness. And out of that, as you know, comes the way in which certain cells get sort of survived to provide certain functions. And the body really is just a combination of really varied uh, sets of... Um, uh, environments for things to do things and they come together and it's a it's a a place replete with variety well part of that variety is the number of synaptic connections that you have in your brain despite the pruning that seems to happen at three and at 12 you get to 1920 you got a hundred billion synapses in your brain but of course the real uniqueness of you is a function of the connections between those synapses and the numbers there as i said in the book are mind-boggling, mind-boggling. um m- more synaptic connections in your brain than there are stars in 5000 milky ways unbelievable variety in your brain and we know that your brain retains its plasticity through the course of your life. So, of course, you keep making new synapses and connections all the way through your life. But we also know that you don't completely rewire your brain into somebody else's. That The the brain seems to grow more synapses in those areas of the brain where it has the most pre-existing synapses. So, in a sense, as you grow, you become... a a richer, fuller, hopefully more intelligent, less defensive version of who you already are. You don't become somebody else. And if you've ever had kids, you know that they don't become, if you have two kids, they don't, they might grow into more um, uh, healthy, thriving versions of themselves, but they don't become their sibling. They don't in terms of what they lean into, what they love, what they loathe, what they gain satisfaction from, what drains them. That kind of variety is there in each one of us. And it's massive. And it explains, in a sense, why some of us, we might lean into this moment, whereas you lean out of that moment. You might laugh at that joke. Well, I don't even understand it. You might draw these connections between these particular sources of input, whereas I don't even see the sources of input. We we get kicks out of really very specifically different things. Now, what that means for each one of us, though, is that activities themselves have um, valence to them. They have emotional Mm -hmm. content as a psychometrician. That's what you realize really early when you're interviewing people about their jobs, the activities themselves lift you up, invigorate you, but not all the same activities for each one of us in the same job. The very first job I studied was housekeepers in hotels. And the first thing you might think about housekeepers is what a boring job or Everyone must not like that job. or But you actually interview the best housekeepers and you hear a totally different description of that job. And what you're hearing is, is the particular activities of the housekeeping job that certain great housekeepers love. Yeah, yeah. And they're not all the same. They're all a bit different. But one of them will say that she loves making a little scene with the fluffy toys because these were housekeepers at Walt Disney World. And one of them will have the arm... On Mickey's shoulder, and Minnie's arm will be in an empty French fry container, and it looks like they just hung out watching TV all day. The next day, Goofy and Mickey are dancing on the windowsill. So that's what she loved. And another one will say, I love looking at the room from the guest's perspective. So I sit on the toilet, or I lie in the bath, or, or the last thing I'll do is I'll lie on the bed and turn on the ceiling fan. And even back then, I can remember going, what, Why would you do that? <laughs> and she's like, Well, that's the first thing a guest does after a long day out in the park, you come and you flop down on the bed, turn on the fan, dust comes off the top of the fan, it's as dirty as the rest of the room. So you hear lots and lots of examples like that, of love, things that they get a kick out of. And And I remember you
0: mentioned uh, vacuuming and pulling out and the carpet is perfectly smooth. I used to vacuum carpets for a living prior to college and... I was that person. I mean, I just it, it was a perfect sea of, of perfection and I I still love doing that kind of thing and it's just I can't explain it, you know. It's just there. It is just there and it's um it's one of those
1: things where you you realize that for no good reason other than the clash of your chromosomes you right. like vacuuming yourself out of a room. Yes. That's <laughs> that's not because you're male or caucasian or have a you know phd or have committed yourself to the life of a, a cardiothoracic so it's just because it's because of the crazy clash of your chromosomes and yeah. and what we have to you know it's funny in the face of the massive complexity of a particular human being we tend to just want to simplify you. So we say, well, you're an extrovert and you're an introvert or you're organized and over here, your friend over here is disorganized. Makes sense of everything,
0: yeah. Right, right.
1: We we try to simplify you. But really what we should do is we should say to someone, listen, um, your day, every day, isn't just a day. It's not like a Monday. It's actually filled with thousands of different Activities, moments, situations, inputs, contexts, a five minute conversation here, vacuuming yourself out of a room there, mm-hmm. confronting someone over here, writing an email there, doing a particular procedure on a patient there, follow like it's just a thousand different inputs. And some of these activities are basically emotionally pretty neutral for you. You just sort of get through them without much of an emotional valence one way or another. But some of them are emotionally laden, they lift you up. Um, they are like, and the analogy I used is threads that your day is a fabric of many different threads, some of them black, white, gray, green, yellow, right. lift you up a little, little. Right. But some of these threads are red. Some of these activities are before you do them, you sort of find yourself looking forward to them. There's a there's there's positive anticipation. While you're doing them, as the positive psychologist Mike Chekhamahai called it, you experience flow.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're in
1: the moment and time whips by and it feels like you've been doing it 5 minutes but you look up it's an hour like whew, love and time have this weird relationship where when you're doing something that you love just like when you're with someone that you love time seems to whip, whip, whip by and when you're done with it you the activity when you're finished it's not like you're drained it, you might not quite be ready to saddle up and do it again but you feel authentic lifted up you feel full <laughs> full fulfilled you feel mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you feel filled so so In a sense, your life has given you a beautiful clue or set of clues to your red threads. Before you do it, you look forward to it. While you're doing it, time flies by. When you're done with it, you feel full. That's basically love is your decoder. What are the particular activities where you feel those sensations? Not all of them all at once. Sometimes you might procrastinate something, but when you're doing it, boom, time whips by. So it's not like they're all correlate. but but there are clues, your life has given you clues. So when we look at I actually quoted Mayo Clinic research data right. and yeah. doctors and nurses, and, and it looks as though 20% is a useful threshold. This is Tate Sonnenfeld's work out of Duke um, and now out of Stanford, but, and it's not definitive, but what it seems to suggest is those doctors and nurses who said they found 20% red threads in a day, every day, not not 60 not 100 red threads not like a red quilt every day but you get above 20 percent, all sorts of good things happen for you you get below 20 percent, and your burnout risk as you go down one percentage point 19 18 17 16 yeah, yeah. there's almost a perfect linear increase in burnout right. risk yeah almost like it looks like the numbers are fake but so if you get to zero it's like Why do we have burnout in doctors and nurses? Well, there's an awful lot of doctors and nurses that don't know how to find red threads in their day. And it's not their fault necessarily. There's lots of influences that might pull them away from those red threads, but a big part of it may well be that no one has told my daughter or your son or any of
0: these people that red threads even exist. Exactly. And this is the whole important message of this podcast. And it's so critical. Yes. The awareness to know that these things are in each and every one of us and that we can, if we work at it, find them in our work most of the time. Yeah. And it, it
1: begins by saying, I mean, one of the big challenges in most education, as you know, is that you're basically told from the age of about nine or 10, that your loves aren't real, that, 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 what's, that, that you don't have any red threads. And in fact, we're going to take a quote unquote growth mindset toward you, which basically means there's no you in there. You can be whatever you want. And so education becomes outside in. It's basically information transfer and confirmation through standardized testing. That's what most education is all the way up through the world of work. Right, right. which, Which A, basically says to you, you don't have an idiosyncratic way of drawing nourishment and love from activities. That's not real. Don't even look for it, right. ignore it. In fact, it sort of gets in the way because we want you to learn a bunch of standardized stuff, whether it's at school or at college or at university or residency, we, your job success is a function of how mm-hmm. closely you can fit the standardized models that we designed in advance of you arriving on right, the scene. Right. Right. So from a very, very early age, you're told your loves aren't real. Red threads don't exist. You can't find nourishment in life because it's not real. All of that's wrong. So what we've got to do to start with, we could change the educational system or we could change the workplace system. But it sort of starts. That's why I focused the book on this. But it starts with us going, yeah. Yeah. maybe you could wake up tomorrow and just have a slightly different relationship to your day. Rather than looking at your day as something that's kind of an enemy to get through, a list of to-dos rolled over from yesterday to get through, maybe you look at your day as your smartest, wisest, most loving friend, and it's trying to put on a show for you every day. It's trying to go, how about this activity? How about this thread? How about this one? How about this one? How about this one? And if you think about your day like that, it's not a get-slim-quick pill, but what a What a wonderful way to start every day to go. I wonder what red threads I can weave today. Mm -hmm. What can I find today that is, for me, nourishing? And, of course, the really tricky thing about it is that no one can tell you what they are because everyone else is colorblind to, to, to your red threads. So this kind of pragmatic in the world vibe of your life is trying to show you who you really are and how to Turn that love into contribution. Love and work. It's not love and love. It's like love and contribution.
0: Love and contribution, um, because love leads to contribution, as you so beautifully point out in the book. Yeah.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a impetus for it. it was like, gosh, how, where do we start? We've got your son. We've got my daughter. Given nothing, in order to help them figure out how to use their work to nourish them and make a contribution. We've got doctors and nurses burning up at outrageous levels and yet we don't actually get to the core of it and go look there may be some systemic problems with the way that we structure the work okay Mm -hmm. we can talk about those but also we've got a day-to-day reality that doctors and nurses aren't helped to know about how can they pick out their red threads and weave them into contribution over and above money that sense of alienation from the work itself yes i want more money maybe i want less stress but when we look at pay equity data and we look at stress data both of those things are highly correlate to whether i have an opportunity to do what i love and feel like i'm good at it every day so if you feel connected to the activities of your day not all of them even just 20 percent,
0: just enough yeah
1: it's like as i said in the book a little love goes a long way yeah but it's not like 29 days of lovelessness plus one intensely love-filled day. That's not the way that love works for us. It needs to, it appears to need to be kind of every day. I need something that nourishes me, something that really fits who I just happen to be. And we, yeah, we've got to figure out a way to help people do that because otherwise the work will always be alien to them.
0: You know, and I I feel like there's such a parallel to a close emotional relationship with our significant others, too, uh, because you you need that sort of sense of connection and and vibe within a relationship on a regular basis. It doesn't just come on a particular weekend, you know, uh, for for it to sustain itself. That's certainly been my experience.
1: Yes. And you you want to, in all the research on happy marriages and happy relationships, um, what you find... Um, you, you don't find that that uh, people after the honeymoon effect is over they take their rose tinted glasses off and mm-hmm. see you for who you really are mm-hmm. it's funny when you look at really happy relationships the one partner feels as though the other partner sees them for the best of them they're called benevolent distortions in the literature mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. it's almost like I, I'm deliberately looking for the best explanation, the most generous explanation for why you do what you do. And I believe it. And I reflect to you that I believe it, that I'm always looking for the things that you love, that, that you're into, that lift you up. I'm not the one who's like a detective getting down to the truth about yeah, what what's wrong. Do. Right like, what's right. wrong with you how can you fix yourself my job as your partner is to show you who you really are like mm-hmm. no none mm-hmm. of that which is why feedback which everyone is eulogizing these days but it's so pernicious yeah it's in the best relationships i don't give you feedback i share my reaction i can tell you how i feel but i don't then tell you what you should be doing differently all the time in order to be right. yeah. better in the best relationships the goal isn't to make you better the goal is to make you bigger, bigger, is make you bigger. It's like, I I don't need to love what you love. I need to love that you love what you love. And I need to see it. And I need you to know that I see it. From that comes the safety and the warmth that you feel that you can experiment, you can risk, you can learn, you can try new things. And you know that your partner is looking at it with rose tinted glasses on.
0: It's psychological safety in the in, in, in every endeavor, yeah. You Absolutely. know, and this is a perfect moment to, for you to talk about the weird W-Y-R-D that you use in the book to describe our unique elements. And then the, you know, taking that and it's such a beautiful concept because it's such an anchor in terms of how we view people and rather than viewing them as, oh, I like that about them, but I don't like that. And they should fix that and they're a pain in the ass or whatever i mean when you have the idea of the weird and you embrace that it really uh, for me it's also a profound uh roadway or you know avenue into compassion for other people uh by simply framing it in that way you know so if you could tell us about the weird concept yeah well the oldest painting
1: yeah and the, the painting thing
0: too and that yeah and the, the the teams and right, the so, that, that
1: cave. Yeah. so in 2017, this this um, amateur archaeologist uh, in Indonesia um, called Pak ruler he was looking around for um, cave drawings. Um, they'd found an old handprint in a limestone cave on the island of Sulawesi, and so he was looking for more of those. The handprint was about 25,000 years old. Um, the oldest. Uh, cave drawings we'd found prior to this were in that area 25, 27, 28,000 years old. the ones in the famous ones in France are about seventeen, thousand mm-hmm. years old. Anyway he climbs up and he finds this this drawing, this 15 foot mural on the wall. It's not a handprint, it's like a whole mural and it's of these figures that are holding s- spears or ropes and it's clearly like a hunting party because they've also the artist has also drawn animals local fauna but what's interesting about it is that the and they think it's a woman who 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 drew it she she drew animal characteristics on each of the humans so yes they've got the spears and stuff but one of them's got the trunk of an elephant one of them's got the tail of a crocodile one of them's got the face of a cat and it looks as though what she was doing was trying to reflect the unique personality traits of each person, so one of them is as strong as an elephant, one of them is as wily mm-hmm. as a crocodile, right? Mm-hmm. One of them's as brave as a cat. And what's kind of cool about it is that fifty—and by the way, it was fifty thousand years old. Right. So it's the oldest right. human art we have ever found. Actually, it's forty-four thousand years old, but that's conservative. They think it's older than that. So fifty thousand years ago, we can see inside the mind of this human, which is, of course, the beautiful thing about art—is you can sort of yeah, see right. what they were thinking. Right. And what she was doing was that she was she was seeing the unique people across the campfire and going "Ooh, well you're really strong and you're really wily and you're really brave and what happens if we put you together on a team how, how about we call it a team and we could do together what we could never do alone and what you see her thinking is wow each of you is unique and I'm not going to fight against it I'm not going to wish you were all different I'm not gonna standardize the living daylights out of you. I'm actually gonna say, let's use a new technology, which from now on we'll call a team and we'll try to use the uniqueness of each of you. Now, obviously today we've lost sight of that completely because we say so many times there is no I in team as though the point of the team is to remind you that you're not as important as the team. You're, you're subordinated, yeah. Right, that yeah. was never the point of a team. The point of the team was always to capitalize on these unique individuals. So we can see very early in humans, the appreciation of individual difference. Fast forward about, I don't know, 48,000 years to the time of the ancient Norse, the, uh, the Vikings, they had an idea of your uniqueness, your, in, your indelible uniqueness, which they called a weird, uh, not, not uh, W-E-I-R-D, but but W-Y-R-D, that it's a noun, that you have a weird and that you're born with it. And that doesn't mean that you can't, uh, you know, you can't learn or you can't grow, but it means that you're going to grow and learn through the the dynamics and the patterns and the structure of your, we- of your weird. And theirs, theirs was an inherently, um, there was a sort of inherently spiritual aspect to that right. understanding of theirs. but. We don't need that today. Today, we know that the, that clash of the chromosomes does create very, very early, creates the uh, a set of patterns of behavior and thought and feeling in you that is beautiful and filigreed and massive. And that's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's not like some people have a good weird, some people have a rotten weird. It's just an expression of uniqueness. And so as we look at ourselves, we need to be, to your point, compassionate in going, well, what I lean into, what I love, what I loathe, what drains me, what uplifts me, it's part of a weird pattern that I seem to share with precisely no one. No one. Yeah. And I don't need to beat myself up about it, because when I start comparing, I just disappear. So instead, I should try to figure out how I get comfortable with identifying my weird, with stepping into my weird so that my life becomes hopefully a way to contribute that weird and to use the day-to-day reality of my life to to nourish that weird. And I end up living a first-rate version of my life. Of course, that means also for each individual we meet. They are, I mean, I, I sort of ended the book this way going, you know, we so rarely get beyond the introduction Yeah. Hi, I'm Marcus. But gosh, if you can push forward beyond that introduction, each person we meet has five thousand bloody Milky Ways in their head. They are unbelievably. When they die, that whole uniqueness will be gone forever. Gone. And it's not that we should be trying to perfect them or turn them into us. We should be trying to help see some of that weird, w y r d, and go, wow. When you you die. That weird is gone forever. And teams, you know, it's funny, people say, well, that doesn't work in business because in business we'd get chaos if we just, like the Navy, we can't have that in the Navy because then that's, or surgeons, it's like, well, there's a certain way that we need to train everybody. Otherwise, we're going to get chaos. Mm -hmm. And of course, on one level, the minimum requirements, that's right. There are certain things we need to train everybody, whether it's the Navy or housekeeping or cardiothoracic surgery. But Beyond that, the, um, you know, the, the best way for us to take uniqueness and, and make it be useful rather than chaotic is to put different people together on different teams. We figured out the solve yeah. for uniqueness and it was yeah. called a team. Yeah. And you know, going all the way into, into your world, one of the biggest challenges in hospitals, why do doctors and nurses find it so difficult to be resilient? Well, yes, there's a whole focus on conformity and consistency, but there's also, there's very few teams, very few organized, the hospitals aren't built around teams. Right, right. That's a, that's a big problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Nurse mm-hmm. supervisor to nurse ratios of one to 60. I mean, this doesn't work. I mean, it and might and work as, financially. Yeah,
0: and as you point out in the book so beautifully, it's, it's what trumps who and why Uh, and but who you work for and tell me if I've got this right it's not so much that you work particularly for an or a particular organization say Tesla or the Cleveland Clinic although that may be important but the most important thing in terms of your well-being is who you work with and the team that you're working with and do you feel part of part of the team and you're doing what you love to do
1: it's funny because you can you know as Simon Sinek has pointed out, I think, uh-huh. really well on many occasions, you should probably start with why.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So that you can believe in the mission of what you're joining and you're excited about it. But you why doesn't sustain you as day to day. Day yeah, to day. Yeah, as yeah. the burnout rates in doctors and nurses reveal. I mean, it couldn't doesn't be clearer suspect. what the why is for healthcare, no. right? No. No. Now some would say, well, that's because we exploit the why and we don't, but it's no, it's let's say that you're a Catholic and you believe in your church, passionately believe in your church, but then you're appointed to be head of the fundraising campaign for the new steeple, but you hate fundraising. Right. The day-to-day reality of picking up the phone and calling and asking people that actual activity itself for you is not a red thread. It's right. whatever the opposite of a red thread is. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, best of luck trying to sustain your efforts to raise money for the steeple, even though you passionately believe in the why, the day-to-day yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> the day to day activities, it's like if you believe in the, pa- in the purpose of your company, but the day to day realities of what you're doing Monday through Friday, you can't find your red threads, there are no red threads, you you've lost belief in the existence of your own red threads. If that's your reality, you'll burn up the why doesn't sustain you. So the mm-hmm. first thing we got to remember is that why that you could start with why, what will sustain you that the actual activities that you're doing every day, what are they? can you find any red threads in them what are they that's why in the book i have a red thread questionnaire to help you find out kind of what are these activities could you write yourself a love note that just goes i love it when and then then just finish the sentence
0: i love it when what marcus let's go into that in a little more granular detail because i think it'll be very useful for people so you have three ways of kind of getting at the red threads can you kind of go through those and and, and, and a little bit of specificity, uh, if possible, here, because they're very, very important. And it will sound a little woo-woo to, I think, a lot of my colleagues, but I can assure you it is not. It's probably one of the most core activities you could do for yourself in the, at this time.
1: Well, yes, it, you can go as deep and as granular as you want to do this. Going back to Ken Robinson stuff, uh, she's not sick, she's a dancer. Okay, she's a dancer is a great first step. Mm-hmm. Um, then, of course, if you were working with her, you would go. Well, we need to try to get a little more vivid around that. What are the particular aspects of dance that, for you, elevate you, that invigorate you? That invigoration, by the way, leads to behavior, which leads to competency. A, B, C. Doesn't always. Sometimes you love some things and you never actually get good at them, good enough at them, for somebody to pay you to do them. Those are red threads too, and we call those hobbies, and that's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. More ho- hobbies tend to be love. Love giving things in our lives this is why we right. that's why we do them. Right. So it's not always that that the attitude of love leads to the behavior of practice, leads to competency. It doesn't always work linearly like that. But we do know that that love leads to appetite, to practice. We know that doing something that you love creates a different sort of chemical cocktail in your brain, which does seem to open you up to more information, more learning. So you do seem to learn and grow the most when you're doing particular activities that you love yeah so there is all sorts of interesting stuff around that how do you start like if you were talking to the dancer who's 11 you'd go uh, she would like okay i get all of this i get it i get it how do i find mine um and so if some of your colleagues might be like you know i guess they could be cynical uh you know this is as you said woo woo but it's like most of them probably will be open-minded enough to the idea that there is uniqueness inside of them and that for no good reason other than the clash of their chromosomes, they do seem to get a kick out of this, but not that. So the best way to start kind of demystifying yourself, frankly, is to do a simple activity that no one's ever done before, but it doesn't take any time. Just take a blank pad around with you for a week, draw a line down the middle of the pad, but loved it at the top of one column and loathed it at the top of the other column. Just take it around with you for a week. And anytime you see one of those three signs of a red thread, if before you do it, you find yourself positively anticipating it, your mental hand just keeps going up, you you project into it before you're doing it, that's a great clue. While you're doing it, you have this time speeding up phenomenon where you find yourself, one of the ironies of life, you find yourself most clearly when you vanish into the activity itself. So it takes a little bit of mental discipline to go, when do I vanish? When am I part of, I'm not doing the thing. I am the thing somehow. When's that? And then lastly, when you're done with it, what are the particular activities where you are actually invigorated, invigorated, strengthened,
0: energized,
1: energized. Yes. yeah, when you're done with it? take that pad around with you. Anytime you see one of those three signs, scribble down exactly what you were doing. Anytime you find the inverse of one of those three signs, you procrastinate it, you push it off, you try to hand it off to other people. When you're doing it, time slows down and it's like, it's like you're in molasses. And when you're done with it, you do feel kind of drained and empty. Maybe a tiny bit proud that you got done with it, but it was very much that you got done with it. And you it a, mentally- it was, was like, it was a chore. It was a chore. chore. What you'll do after one week, you're using just the raw material or your emotional reaction to the raw material of your life to assess how nourishing your life at work is. You may end up, some of your listeners may end up if they do it. And of course, no one else can do that for them. But if you do it for yourself, you may well find out there's nothing in the loved it list at all. Okay, well, that's non-trivial. Yeah, that is, that's, that's, that's That's a problem. That is, de- psychologically, it's, it's damaging. You yeah. got to do it again next week. If it comes out, two, if you do two weeks in a row and there's nothing here, and remember, we don't, it, you don't have to have 100% here. I mean, if we really can just get like every day, 20% of your time, just think about that as a mental construct. We're not actually counting the minutes. But it, it, what you're trying to do is ensure that you are intentional enough about where these threads are for you that every day is a little scavenger hunt. On some level, it's every day is a little scavenger hunt for love. Why? Because without it, you are bad you're bad at your job, you're bad for the people that you love at home, you're bad for your colleagues, you're not as smart as you should be, you're not as creative as you should be, all the energy you're sending out is go away. It's like you're a worse human. We know this in all sorts of ways. You steal more, you have more accidents, you're more likely to sue when you have the accidents, you're more likely to discriminate against your colleagues. All sorts of bad outcomes happen when you have no red threads every day. So Take a blank pad around with you and do love it and loathe it for a week and see what you come up with.
0: And as you said, if you don't find those, you're psychologically going to end up damaged. So if you stay in a job for money only or the prestige or whatever the reasons that are not founded on the red threads, some aspect of that, ultimately will be psychologically very damaging to you.
1: Yes, it's not a luxury. Ah, Yeah, you know, love's a luxury. No, it isn't. Uh-huh. If you are in a work situation where you have certain things that you love, but you've lost sight of them, you actually have come to believe that they don't really exist. Work really is just a series of chores that you have to get through. If that's your experience of work, love actually burns you up, doesn't it? It's like yeah. love on it. It's like being in a relationship where you can't actually express who you are. That's not neutral. It's emotionally eviscerating yeah same at work you go to work and there's that's like love is a force so you need to express it like all forces are, you know water or wind or if you start blocking it bad things happen um
0: you know this a or a surgeon it's the difference between being a robot and a human being really you know that's what we're talking about here
1: yeah and it's the difference bet- between you know for us as humans we can't be robots that's what we, I, we yeah. can't be healthy robots. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. even with a robot, it's sort of neutral because that's all that, but we humans we have uniqueness that turns out to become patterns of thought and feeling and behavior that need to be expressed. Yeah. When you repress that at work, it is psychologically damaging for you and very damaging for the people that you're trying to support at home. It's not like, oh, don't worry, you can sever. The, the one person,
0: one place, and another one, another place.
1: Yeah, yeah. 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 Best yeah. of luck on that.
0: Yeah, I know. Okay. Yeah, you keep whatever. your
1: personal problems at home. Yeah, actually, right. The hydraulics <laughs> go the other way. Yeah, if you really are distressed at work and alienated at work. You're bringing that home. Yeah, in the worst ways to the people that you love. So, in yeah. some senses, this is a very compassionate thing you can do for yourself, and in other senses, it's a very compassionate thing you can do for those that you love can you find red threads in a regular week of your life do love it load it see what you come up with i suggested in the book and that, you know in the book there's i think it's page 78 there's there's a more detailed red yeah. thread questionnaire yeah. that you can just push yeah. on but but i've said that can you can you write three detailed i call them love notes because i couldn't think of another way to say them but it's really just i love it when
0: oh, i think love notes is perfect yeah
1: to yourself. You don't really have to share to them with anyone else. Yeah. And what I've tried to push on in that chapter is push on the details So let's say that you do love and work and it comes out where you go, Well, I loved helping people. And that's where you ended up with. Okay, that's not detailed enough. Love's in detail. So you loved helping which people. So, so let's push on the detail. When, why, how, under what circumstances, which people get to the detail of it because you know the the, the generic categories, the bland, vague mm-hmm. categories yeah. of so I like working with people, I like helping people. It's like, you know, one of my friends is an, uh, uh, well, we call them an anesthetist, I think, in the UK, mm-hmm. but an mm-hmm. anesthesiologist. Um, and you push with him on what, he, what does he love about anesthes- anesthesiology? And for whatever daft reason, if you asked him to write a love note, it would be, I love it when I am trying to figure out how to hold that patient hovering between life and death. And I'm the only person in the theater who knows the whole patient. I love that pressure. I hate talking to them beforehand. I hate talking to them afterwards. I hate recovery. And you're you, you listen to that and you're like, wow, I bet all anesthesiologists are like that. No, you interview no. another one. And this particular one gets a kick. I love it when I can meet the person beforehand to understand who that particular person is and why that, like, it looks like a different job.
0: Totally different job. It's such yeah. a beautiful example for us. Yeah,
1: really. But it's, it's when you, if my friend doesn't know that that's, he shouldn't beat himself up. This is a doctor who doesn't like recovery. Right. Okay, that sounds really weird. Yeah. No, he loves the weird pressure, and he can't even explain to me exactly how these anesthetics work. Right. Like, anesthetists or anesthesiologists are working with materials that we don't really fully understand. Mm -hmm. For Mm -hmm. me, that would be unbelievably stressful, and for him, it's exciting. It's really just—it's a very, very enthralling, invigorating set of moments that that person gets. But you ask him to then figure out how to help that person have the right kind of things to do at home to alleviate their condition. And then for him, the stress comes from knowing that that person's going to go home, whole bunch of variables involved in their recovery that that doctor can't control. And for whatever reason, he is weirded out by that. That drains him. He's not wrong to feel that way. You might feel really differently, but you're not right to feel differently. But boy, you better know which are the things that really invigorate you as an anesthesiologist, you better. You know who's gonna help you know how to do that? No one. No one, you. you Except you. you. alone, yeah. And it's, and, with all my and, doctor friends, it's the same thing. It's like, you listen to them talk about their job and it doesn't <laughs> seem like the same job. So many different
0: sources of love and energy that can come yeah. from this work. Yeah, and that love and energy, if it's expressed and capitalized on to the extent, uh, to whatever extent is possible, uh, that makes the other stuff so much more bearable. You know, the other things you don't like. I mean, it's night and day. Yes, and it's it's
1: not as though you should do all the red threads at the beginning of the day, or you should do all the red threads at the end of the day. Who knows what your idiosyncratic way of drawing nourishment from your day should be? But to your point, if you've got certain red, red, red threads seem to be made of different material. They seem to be emotionally um invigorating in ways that 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 move you through other parts of your day in a healthy way they've right. got that positive anticipation component too so yeah. as you're doing something else you're thinking it's but it's it's in that and that chemical cocktail that, that we do see when you're doing something that you love the 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 dopamine the serotonin oxytocin norepinephrine and andama there's the stuff in there that's elevated now we don't exactly know how that all works as I said in the book, it's like, we seem to think that it's dysregulating some other function like the, the neocortex, which is very kind of uh, goal oriented. It seems to be doing something to, Barbara Fredrickson said, positive emotions offer broadening, Professor Barbara yeah, right, a, right, a, right. A positive psychologist person going, what's, you know, what's love for? That was kind Broad, of a question. Broaden and build, yeah. Right, for broadening and building, which seems to, it means you open, you're more open to more inputs more open to breaking existing configurations in favor of more effective configurations. So you're more creative. Um, you're, you're, you feel safer to risk. Okay. So yeah. all sorts of things seem to happen when you're doing one of these red threads. It's like you are on fire without the burnout. Right. Right. Okay, that's really cool. That's that, really, that yeah. source of energy is there for us every day, but not like for all of us generically. And that's the big point of the book, actually, of course, is that. We, Your 17-year-old, gosh, I can kind of go back to him every time, but it's like, wouldn't it have been great to have shown him all the way through his teenage years that he's not broken, that he's not, he may have experienced trauma early in life, I don't know, but he's not his traumas. He's, he's got a weird in there that is magical and massive, and life will show him how to demystify it, decode it, so that he can draw strength from life no matter, not quite no matter what he's doing, but whatever he happens to be doing, there will be things in it that for no good reason, other than he's him, invigorate him, that are nourishing. And, and his challenge in life is to be, have enough self mastery to know how to do that. Yeah. Might he become a doctor? Might he become a surgeon? Might he become a lawyer? My goodness knows what his career is gonna be, but no matter where he moves, his life is trying to fill him up. If we could have helped him know how to do that.
0: Yeah. You know, Marcus, maybe this is a good place to kind of wrap up here. I know we're running out of time, but children, and I think, are you got just a couple more minutes to talk about the kids? Because, you know, I have six children and, you know, I've learned a lot of lessons along the way in terms of how to be a better parent. And I've gone full circle from this is the protocol, you know, you go to college and, you know, you figure out your career and you work hard, you know, you work really hard, blah, blah, blah. And uh, to, you know, my son and my other children now, uh, a much more spacious sort of uh, environment for them. And my son is a perfect example, this too kind of highlight it. And I'd love your thoughts about this. So, you know, his, just as an example, his room was always a pigsty. I mean, and whenever he comes home still, he's 28. And he stays here for a few days. The room deteriorates instantaneously into a, a shithole, <laughs> and it's remarkable. He just doesn't care. It's not a. It's not a thing for him, and you can see that's one of the many reasons why the Naval Academy didn't work for him. I mean, it was just too constraining. He's very physical and. And now what he wants to be is outdoors. I mean, he's hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. You know, I've I've let go completely of what I used to think he should be doing. And and now I've learned through your work and other things how to make him bigger and foster and support him. And I've seen this play out with my children in such profound ways. And it's Mm -hmm. dramatically changed my relationship with my children. Uh, That approach, that more spacious approach of, helping them find their loves. Uh, so I just love your f- closing thoughts around our children and how we can be better parents in this regard.
1: Well, if you go back to the Norse idea that they're born with a mm-hmm. weird, I mean, right. when my son was born He uh, He's 21 now, but when he was born, they, right before he was born, they kept losing the heartbeat and it would come back then they'd lose it and it would come back and everyone got very panicked. And, and so they sort of rushed us in and, and, um, um his mom was induced and then right when he was born the doctor said to me come come look at this come and i'm like what um and she goes i've never seen this and he had a vice grip on his umbilical cord and as he came out he was squeezing the umbilical cord passing out waking (laughs) up squeezing his umbilical cord passing out waking up (laughs) squeezing and To some extent, that's how he's gone, that's how he goes through life. Yeah. Kind of chill and then squeezing the wicked. And and of course he's grown, and of course he's he's developed. but you see that weird so early. So as parents, we there's that lovely poem from Khalil Gibran that I put in the book that Mm -hmm. your children are not your children.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: They are the arrow. You are the bow. And what use is an arrow with a bow still attached? the the job of a bow is he says much more eloquently than I'm saying it is to be stable and you let the thing fly. And then you don't run along underneath it, nudging it and nudging it and pushing it and twirling it. And, and you sure as blazes, don't keep it attached to the bow. You just let it fly. And in a sense, that's a beautiful metaphor for our kids are born with a, with a pattern of synaptic connections. If you want to just go the biological route that is completely unique and distinct and to them and comes therefore from who knows where, but it gets manifested in behaviors and emotional response to those behaviors and actions and activities and feelings that you see in your son, I see in mine. And our job as parents is to be space makers. Space makers. Space makers. You need to give your kids the space that they need to choose because when they choose, you see your kid every time you make a rule, and our kids should have rules, no question, Uh but every time you make a rule, you take away a choice. Every time you take away a choice, you take an opportunity, you take away an opportunity for choosing. And the person who's doing the choosing is the kid, and you're doing the watching. So every time you make a rule, you take away an opportunity for you to see your kid choose something. Well, when you see your kid choose something, you learn more about that, that, those 5,000 Milky Ways in their brain. And so we as parents have to be the most intelligent space makers we can possibly be it doesn't mean we can't give advice and we can't counsel but our real challenge with our kids is to see them as as simplistic as that sounds you can't love what you can't see so we've got to let our kids make choices lots of choices because then we see them and when we uh convey to them that they're being seen then for them, the, the audience of us kind of is one of those things that helps create the performance of the kid. So we are connected to them through what we see of them. Then they become connected more to themselves by what they know that we are seeing of them. And this isn't self-indulgent. It's not narcissistic. We're doing this because love needs to turn into work. This is love and work, not love and love, right? right? It's like, it is about contribution. So we as parents can keep talking about expression and contribution of something valuable to a team, to a community, whatever it is. So yes, there is expression that has to happen, but we as parents are really trying to create the right bubble so that the kid can bounce around within it. And when we do that, we are at the very least allowing that kid to, to experience themselves and that, of all the things that we try to do as parents, we've got to try to let the kid experience themselves mm-hmm. and get into that lovely feedback loop of self-mastery, which isn't easy. I'm not, I wouldn't dream of suggesting, you've got six kids. I've only got two. You, you're sort of three times as intelligent as I am about how this all plays right. out. But, um, but certainly the idea of, of coating your kid in tinfoil to protect them from the world means that when you look at your kid, you just see yourself with all your fears reflected back at you
0: well put well put yeah
1: and that if you're not careful your kid is really a manifestation of your own insecurities and fears and down that path lies alienation and and disconnection between you and your kid
0: yeah for sure well that was that was beautifully put marcus and you know in in closing i mean i i really sincerely uh thank you For your decades of work and your massive contributions, and in particular for this book, Love Plus Work, I mean it's been so enlightening to me. Uh, Just on a personal level, it's helped my children immensely to have a framework to how to think about their lives. And uh, I'm sure I can speak for so many people. You know, the impact that you've had is just uh, enormous. So, thank you. A massive uh, thank you and gratitude for all that you've done and all that you brought to the world.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. That means that means a great deal. Thank you.
0: And of course, in the show notes, we'll put all the places where they can find you and, and, and so forth. Is there any particular thing you'd like to say about where people could contact you or reach out to you or find your work? We um I mean I'm probably most active on Instagram
1: in terms of the social media. So people like to follow along on Instagram. That's that's great. Loveandwork.org uh, is where we've created a, a six-part series with Harvard on basically what are the core concepts that we can all agree on inside of love and work um so that we can actually become an army of 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 team members team leaders leaders of leaders of leaders um parents educators how can we come together our own different ways to create um more loveless sorry less loveless classrooms more love-filled classrooms more love-filled workplaces how can we build love and work organizations so if you go to loveandwork.org you'll find all that content and uh, if you have a book um you know harvard and i just decided that we wanted to make different forms of learning available some people like books other people like videos some people like tests some people like lecture notes so um whatever your learning modality of preferences uh we try to put as much of that on there as we possibly could great
0: great well again thank you
1: my pleasure that this was a red thread i really enjoyed it good if it's useful All right. all right take care
0: This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.